2023 with Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. This month, we are all about the coronation of King Charles III and, since it's May, Anne Boleyn. We have some of our favorite historians joining us, so sit back and enjoy. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us. I am thrilled, as I always am, when there's a chance to speak with Tracy Borman about another book, about the work she's been doing. She is doing so many things right now, and I am thrilled to welcome her to the podcast and thank her also for being on camera. So welcome, Tracy, and thank you. Thank you so much, Caroline. It's lovely to be back. I always just absolutely love our chats and the time flies by. Yes, and I'm, and I'm so grateful. It is always so much fun. Now, let's just dip into what you're doing a little bit right now, sort of coming off Crown and Scepter, since there are um, so many events leading up to a new coronation for the first time. You know, it's been 70 years, so um, a lot going on with that. So tell us about the theater tour. Yeah, this is huge. Um, and it's keeping me awake at night at the moment. <laughs> it's scary. I've never done a theatre tour before. And it's really inspired by the coronation. It's called How to Be a Good Monarch. So this show is uh, me sharing some of the secrets of success from the past thousand years, the do's and the don'ts uh, for any current future monarch. Um, and yes, it's sort of based on my book, Crown and Scepter, but as I say, very much inspired by the coronation. So lots of kind of pertinent examples that, uh, to draw on. And it's something so different because I'm used to giving talks, but this is a show, you know, with mm -hmm. audio visual and a few special effects and film footage and music. My favorite bit, though, that I'm looking forward to most is they're building me a throne for oh, the stage. So, oh, that's wonderful. So I get a throne. I don't know oh. if I get to sit on it, but I will, you know, I probably will. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's so exciting. 24 theatres in about four weeks um, and uh, in April and May. And I'm hoping, you know, if it does well here, I can I can come with it across the pond and oh. use it in America. I'd love that. Oh, so would we. That would be. So if you need anyone to drive you around, I'll do it. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that would be that would be wonderful. Well, that's great. And speaking of that, so your most recent publication is Crown and Scepter, which we have, of course, and we've spoken about that, which takes us from 1066 right up to the present monarch, King Charles III. And I know there had to be a little um, revision right there because it came out, of course, during the reign of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Mm. And sadly, I think we're all still a bit in shock, still six months on, of her passing. Yeah. So we are now getting ready for a new coronation. And so thousands of years of history here. Now, your next book, and we're just getting ready to celebrate the publication of that, interestingly enough, on May 19th, that should be a big teaser about what it's about, <laughs> is about Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, the mother and daughter who changed history. Now so I wondered, yeah, and there it is. Yay, there it is. I don't I got it. So <laughs> brilliant and beautiful. So I have I have my collection, but it you can see there's a space and many spaces in the bookshelf waiting for it. <laughs> So um, can you share with us the difference? So 
This most recent one is this sweeping history of the monarchy. And then we're going to a really specific mother and daughter, such a narrow focus. What's that difference like in terms of the researching and the writing? Well, I have to say the main thing is is joyful because mm. um, after writing that sweeping history, which nearly finished me off, I mean, that was a colossal undertaking, a thousand years of history. If it hadn't been for lockdown, I think I just would not have finished it, but I was forced to just sit and write. And, that's, and so I loved that in terms of getting that sweep of history. But then to go from that to a quite forensic analysis of, as you say, something much more specific, a mother-daughter relationship. Two of the most famous women in history, but it's still, you know, quite a focused subject. And I have absolutely loved it because with a focused subject, you can go so much deeper mm-hmm. into the original research uh, that go back to the original documents. Um, and that's exactly what I did for this book. And it was such a joy getting to work with archives again, because Crown and Setra, I did. I certainly did some archival research, but you can't do the same depth as for a subject like this. So I have loved it. I've set up camp both in the British Library where you and I fortuitously yes. met for that cup of tea, which was lovely, and also in in the National Archives as well. I've spent a lot of time there, and it's been a joy. That is wonderful, and you do really get down and deep, and and that's terrific. So tell us a little bit um, why you chose this mother and daughter. Um, mm-hmm. There are a number of relatives in the Tudors, but why this mother and daughter? I think I know, but I'd love to have you share some of that with us. Sure. Well, the inspiration came from the second book I wrote, which I can see gracing your bookshelves <laughs> there. Thank you very much, Elizabeth's Women, mm-hmm. um, which really struck a chord for me when I researched that book. I came across the lives of so many women who I wanted to take further. But again, it was a, it was quite a big subject. There were about sort of 50 or so women that I that I uh, wrote about in that book. But the relationship that fascinated me the most was between Elizabeth and her mother. And I thought, I really want to do more on this. And now that was published back in 2009. So it's taken me that long to come back. And and do what I wanted to do as soon as I'd finished that book and just go deeper on Anne and Elizabeth. But also, it wasn't just my personal desire. Genuinely, this is a fascinating relationship. And it's a neglected relationship mm-hmm. as well. We know all about Anne Boleyn. We know all about Elizabeth. But the two combined, not so much. Mm-hmm. And I think assumptions have been made that and because she was only around for a very short time in Elizabeth's life, had no impact on her daughter. But goodness me, is the opposite the case, as I was delighted to find out. So, yeah, it's endlessly, to me, and I hope um, to your followers as well, just such a fascinating subject. Well, and we hear Elizabeth speak quite a bit about her father and position herself with her father, especially early on as she's establishing her reign. But there were ways she kept her mother close as well. And so can you talk to us about some of that, some of the ways that we know Elizabeth was thinking about her mother? Yeah. So with Elizabeth and her mother, we're talking actions, not words. Yes, you're right. She publicly identifies with her father because why wouldn't she? She has to enhance her legitimacy when Mm -hmm. she becomes queen well certainly before she becomes queen she knows that most of the country see her as illegitimate their Mm -hmm. marriage has been dissolved before Anne's execution 
So she has to stress the point, you know, I'm a Tudor. I'm Henry VIII's daughter. I deserve to be here. But look at her actions. They're all about her mother. Mm -hmm. And she does, you know, when she becomes queen, she immediately gathers around her in her household, her Berlin relatives. Mm -hmm. They dominate Elizabeth's court and in particular her private world. It's extraordinary. Pretty much every job on offer in Elizabeth's household goes to a Berlin or, you know, that that side of the family. Mm -hmm. Um, And she, you know, she's been criticized a lot for not reburying her mother you know, in more fitting surrounds than that chapel in the tower where where poor Anne was bundled into an arrow chest after her execution and, and buried alongside other traitors mm-hmm. in the Tower of London. But Elizabeth, above all, is a pragmatist and she knows she'd literally be digging up the past if she made a big song and dance, reburying this woman who was so controversial. So she's much more discreet, more private um, in in, for the most part, although there's uh, some interesting exceptions to that. She is mostly discreet, but yeah, look at what Elizabeth does, not what she says. And then you get to the heart of how she felt about her mother. Right. And I think that's something really exciting for us to take a look at because there are some really compelling um, items as evidence. We've talked about that wonderful checkers ring mm-hmm. um, that's, I'm certain, I mean, I 100% believe it's a portrait of her mother with her in there. There's also, I've seen in the Victorian Albert Museum that um, napkin where you can see the falcon. You have to stand just right because the light hits it. But you can see that she's using her mother's falcon on all kinds of things. And it's really an extraordinary um, touch in all kinds of places. So, yeah, I'm so pleased you mentioned that table linen um, because actually that features prominently in the book. There, there's also a version of it um, in Gresham College in, in London. Okay. And they've recently had it restored. And I went to see it in the conservation studio. And you're right, in certain lights, you can't see the patterns. But then when you do see them, goodness me, there's Elizabeth. And then there's a huge falcon above her. And, it, and that pattern is repeated again and again. This is all about her mother. Uh, and by the way, this decorates the cover of my book, this tablecloth, the kind of inside of the oh. book. It is so beautiful. So I'm pleased. Anyone would think that I asked you to ask me that. <laughs> no, I just, I remember the first time I saw it and you do, but when you stand in the right light and can see it, yeah. I gasped out loud, which I'm known to do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, it's, absolutely. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, yeah. And very, it's very large. You can't miss it in the right light. You cannot miss it. So you can't miss it. And there are other examples as well. Um, the, the virginals, both mm-hmm. Anne and Elizabeth love to play the virginals. And there's that set in the v yes, uh, right. which has the Falcon emblem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On them, uh, she kept falcons in place uh, in some of her palaces. Of course, we had that wonderful example of a falcon yes. turn up uh, in recent times. Um, and so, yeah, there were falcons everywhere. And very topically, at her coronation, uh, yes. the, the falcon was everywhere. Um, so I love that, and I love the fact that right the way up to the end of her life, Elizabeth is honouring her mother. So her tomb in mm-hmm. Westminster Abbey bears a falcon you know this is not a woman who is ashamed of her mother who wants to cover over all of that you know and I say she's subtle but she gets less subtle as her reign goes on (laughs) she gets a bit more confident Mm -hmm. in her queenship and that's when you see her shouting a bit more about about her mother 
Mm-hmm. Right. And, and really taking a stand. And that is really wonderful. Now, I know one of the things we chatted about back when we met at the British Library is this, the title, Anne Boleyn Elizabeth I, and the subtitle, The Mother and Daughter Who Changed History. So why did they or how did they change history? Give us some examples. Okay, so religion was a biggie here. Mm-hmm. As much for Anne as for Elizabeth. Elizabeth is rightly hailed as a you know Protestant monarch. She um she firmly established the new reformed faith in England, but it began with her mother. Mm-hmm. And Anne was absorbing all of these reformist ideas during her years in France, um, before she came to the English court. And she was a real committed reformer. Um, now she had to be careful about it because heresy was a word that you know banded about. Um, but she was getting books imported secretly from overseas um, that were quite radical religious texts. And you know, one of these ended up in in Henry VIII's hands, and um, Anne could have paid for it with her life. But luckily, she brazened it out, and and this book, um, which was Obedience of the Christian Man actually gave a justification for the king being above the Pope. And that really planted a seed for Henry, of course. And it was all thanks to Anne. And so I'd say without Anne and her influence, we wouldn't have had the Reformation. We wouldn't have had the break with Rome. Or at least if we did, it would have been a more gradual process uh, that we saw in other parts of Europe, not this quite brutal severing of England from the rest of Catholic Europe that happened. And so it all starts with Anne. And of course, you know, that then sets in train, you can say a whole number of things, because with the Reformation, you get the rise of Parliament, uh, which ultimately abolishes the monarchy (laughs) in the following (laughs) century. So, so you can see, you know, I'm not claiming that Anne Boleyn is the catalyst for everything. But I think she had such a huge impact on English religious and political life. And of course, she gave birth to Elizabeth, who is, I would say it, but I hope you agree, rightly hailed as probably the greatest monarch in British history. Certainly, she's yeah. she's very definitely up there. So both women were trailblazers uh, in different ways, uh, but they left an indelible mark. And so that's what I look at as well in this book, not just their relationship, but the, the kind of so what, you know, it's interesting as a relationship, but what impact did it have? And it was huge. Yes. So if you look at the Tudors themselves, and Elizabeth, of course, is that longest reigning monarch into the next century and really establishes, firmly establishes the whole dynasty. So I don't know what Henry VIII might have thought of that. But certainly, she does her mother proud. (laughs) She does her mother proud. And I just love the irony. You know, Mm -hmm. this wasn't supposed to happen. In Henry's eyes, he he died thinking, well, I've got a son. He might be only nine years old, but I've got a son. That's fine. He'll have a long reign and he'll have children. He probably didn't really give a thought to Elizabeth, just his youngest daughter. Um, and, And yet, she's the one who goes on to be the glory of the Tudor dynasty. Now, I have read a theory, and I mention it in the book, but I I kind of think it's taking it too far. Uh, And the theory is that Elizabeth deliberately um, destroyed her father's dynasty by not marrying. So as an act of revenge against Henry VIII, Mm. she remained the Virgin Queen because she knew that meant the Tudor dynasty would die out. I personally don't think 
that. And also, it wasn't as kind of black and white as Elizabeth revered her mother, so therefore she had to hate her father. She, I think she revered her father, she, yes. but, but saw him as being fooled, tricked by the men around him into getting rid of Anne. So that's how yeah. she... Mm-hmm kind of squared that, I think, in her head, the fact that her father had ordered her mother's execution. Uh, I think she kind of, you know, came up with that scenario or, you know, there was evidence for that anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. But that was how she managed to reconcile herself with her father, I think. Well, and that's part of the pragmatism because tapping into her father's reign was her best tool early Mm. on for establishing herself and her own reign. Yeah. So, oh, that's that's so interesting to think about it that way. And it makes me think um, of Anne of the Thousand Days, that movie with Jean-Vierre Bougeot and a completely made up conversation between Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn in the tower yes. where she says, my Elizabeth shall yes. be queen and my yes. blood will have been well spent. I love that moment, even if it didn't happen. It should have. So it should have. We both love that moment. I actually quote that in the epilogue to the book because it's like this never happened. But we love. I would love if I could go back and just tell Anne what mm-hmm. was going to happen with Elizabeth. Because mm-hmm. goodness me, she would have died triumphant. You yeah. know, because she didn't know obviously any more than Henry knew. No, uh, and it didn't look good. As Anne, you know, as Anne was experiencing her fall, I don't think it looked good for Elizabeth no. um, to take the throne. So, but no. I, I'd love to think that maybe she thought that even if the conversation didn't take yes. place, because it, yes, it's exactly. one of my favorite moments in all of film. So, yeah. so tell us about, you've talked a little bit, but tell us about some of the challenges. So you've talked about the joys of writing a really specific focus book. What were some of the challenges that come from this? Okay, the main challenges were set by Elizabeth herself. And much as I love her, there were moments of frustration because particularly in her early years and her early reign, she was just so damn discreet about her mother that she didn't leave much of a paper trail. So that that really did set a challenge in, in historical research to actually find anything. And there were moments where I thought, am I just clutching at straws here? Is, is there actually nothing here? about Elizabeth and her mother but then it just takes one little chink of light as you know (laughs) when you're researching and then you're off and Mm -hmm. where I found that chink of light and I better not say too much but were in the inventories of Elizabeth's possessions and so looking at what she chose when Henry VIII died um, his three children were able to go through his possessions really um, Mm -hmm. and choose what they wanted for themselves now Of course, Edward got in there first because he's the boy (laughs) and the new king. So he got first choice and then Mary. Um, But look at what Elizabeth chooses from Henry VIII's possessions. And it speaks absolute volumes. Uh, They're not the highest value items, but a lot of them are related to her mother. So it's often in things like where you don't expect to find it. Account books, inventories. You know, she's not going to leave behind a diary saying, God, I love my mother. You know? <laughs> but um, but you just look at what she's kind of choosing to surround herself with. And that mm-hmm. really does reveal quite a lot. Right. Yes. And the people and the objects um, that were so important to her, that does. And I think, you know, we can see some of ourselves, the things around us that might not. I have a Bible of my mother's that she's written in and it's just priceless to me. 
Oh. Because her handwriting and and so yeah. those kinds of things really are. You choose what really speaks to you. So and isn't there something about that? I can just imagine how special that is to you because having mm-hmm. someone's handwriting, you're mm-hmm. there. That there's mm-hmm. that connection mm-hmm. with them. So handwriting possessions, things that you know that person touched, mm-hmm. you know, they mm-hmm. they just mean so much. I think yes, yes. And I know Kate McCaffrey at Hever Castle has done some research on. Um, one of Anne's book of hours mm-hmm. that was passed among some of Anne's friends and ends up, we don't know for sure, but it does end up with the mother of one of Elizabeth's ladies in waiting. So it makes sense that Elizabeth may have been able to see that. Yeah. I love that thought. And mm-hmm. I think I love thinking about it. what other things survived from Anne's possessions and where did they end up? And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for example, that glorious Anne Boleyn cup uh, that's mm-hmm. now in the church at Sirencester in the sort of west right. of England. And we know that came into Elizabeth's possession and it's got that lovely falcon. falcon. On top. <laughs> yeah. Falcon gets everywhere. It really um, does. It's Yeah. It's, so it's, I think she ended up with quite a bit from her mother. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's great. And that is really nice to think about because um, she took a different take than Mary. Mary did sort of go back and make that marriage legal and sort of resuscitate her mother's reputation. Although Catherine of Aragon's reputation really hadn't been damaged. It was just the marriage. And I don't think anyone really thought the marriage was invalid anyway. So it wasn't a big stretch for Mary. It wasn't. And I I know um, I always get accused of being too critical of Mary. So I'm going to be careful what I say (laughs) here, but she had an easier job of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you're right. Catherine of Aragon never suffered that, uh, that catastrophic destruction of her her reputation mm-hmm. in the way that Anne Boleyn did. Well, Anne Boleyn was never really liked, not yeah. not really, not, not really. widely yeah. liked. Mm-hmm. Whereas Catherine of Aragon, you know, ninety nine percent of people still saw her as the true queen, even after Henry VIII no longer saw her that right. way. Yes, yes. So Mary, it was a popular move, really, mm-hmm. for Mary to revere mm-hmm. her mother. But that said, Mary went too far, I think, trying to kind of bring back the past and certainly in terms of trying to overturn the reformation because even quite a few devout catholics didn't want that overturned because they profited from the reformation and from the dissolution of the monasteries monasteries, certainly yeah yeah so i think elizabeth learned from that she learned a lot from her sister's example i think yes and um that you don't necessarily want to marry the king of spain (laughs) that might not be a good idea (laughs) exactly yes yeah Yeah. and some other things well and that's that's very true but it's it's exciting to hear about ways maybe not public big showy ways but other ways elizabeth did revere her mother Mm. so without revealing too much because of course we're all waiting to get the book but without revealing too much can you talk to us about maybe any surprises that you came across as you were researching and writing the book yeah so there were definitely some some wonderful surprises in those inventories and so satisfying just ah amazing standout moments but I guess what surprised me as well um, by the end of the research I would say what surprised me was the sheer wealth of evidence just Mm. that, that speaks to how Elizabeth revered her mother how she tried to rehabilitate her so that surprised me but something more specific 
is that, yes, I've said a lot about how Elizabeth was discreet and it's actions, not words. But early in her reign, when she's in a risky position because she knows she can't, you know, upset those those of her subjects who see her as a heretic. And Elizabeth pretty much goes into battle on her mother's behalf. There is a huge diplomatic incident um, involving France. Uh, and it has Anne Boleyn at its core. Elizabeth is protesting against something that the French are doing, and it's insulting to her mother. And this is when really Elizabeth puts her neck on the line because, you know, she shouldn't be upsetting one of England's most powerful allies, but she absolutely is because she's furious that they have insulted her mother. And I didn't, I can't claim to have discovered this incident, but it's not well known. It's not well known at all. It's almost been lost over the centuries. And so being able to research that in detail and and tell that story again, this huge diplomatic row entirely prompted by Anne Boleyn and and Elizabeth's reaction to that uh, was unbelievable. I actually couldn't believe what I was reading when, when you look at, you know, this is when Elizabeth, she lets the mask slip and she is livid. Uh, when she sees her her late mother's memory being challenged and blackened, she goes for it, and it's it's yeah, it's sparks fly and heads almost roll. I would say <laughs> that's very exciting. So we'll all look forward to reading about that and and seeing that unfold. So there are. Um, thank you for for sharing that teaser. Uh, there are a couple of moments that Anne and Elizabeth, we talked a little bit about this before, but there are a couple of moments that they share, but not at the same time. Yes. And so May 19th, which is the release date of your book in the UK is the anniversary of Anne's execution. It's also the anniversary in the tower of London. And it's also the anniversary of years later when Mary had imprisoned Elizabeth in the tower of London when Elizabeth is released. And I just just wonder, Elizabeth, knowing that day when she heard the guards coming, what that must have felt like, because that would have just been terrifying. Absolutely. But surprisingly, surprisingly from that moment, Elizabeth returns to the tower in January of 1559 to prepare for her coronation. And she makes some comments about that. So I wonder if you could Talk to us about that because it's sort of, you know, we have before Anne's coronation, she goes to the tower in all of her glory. She's received by Henry VIII. He makes such a big deal about it. And then she is crowned in Westminster Abbey in 1533. And she's pregnant with Elizabeth. So you could say Elizabeth's there with her. Yeah. And then things really change. And so can you sort of tell us how that culminates in that moment with Elizabeth in 1559? Oh, gosh, I'm so pleased you asked me this question today, because today um, I was at the Tower of London um, oh, wow. and and I went to stand on the spot where both Anne and, Anne and Elizabeth stayed before their coronations, okay. but also as prisoners, because it's the same spot, the same royal apartments that we don't have anymore. But shivers down the spine moment to think they were both here. So as you rightly say, Elizabeth, when she becomes um, queen, uh, she upholds the tradition of a monarch going to the tower um, prior to their coronation. Now, I imagine this is the last place she would want it to have been. She was 
utterly terrified last time she was there. It had all of those associations with her mother because Anne Boleyn arrived in the tower um, for her coronation in June 1533, and it was a moment of triumph. Henry VIII had transformed the royal palace in the tower in her honour. He'd added those famous onion domes to the top of the white tower that still makes that famous Mm -hmm. silhouette Mm -hmm. the world over. And then fast forward less than three years, Anne is back, but she's back as a prisoner um, under suspicion of adultery and treason. And she, yeah, to to be back in those apartments, Mm -hmm. knowing, you know, she hasn't been back there since, knowing how everything has changed. It's turned on its head in a matter of three years. And then, as I say, Elizabeth does that in reverse. So she is a prisoner. And as you rightly say, in the same part of the tower, when uh, her sister Mary is on the throne and Elizabeth is suspected of being part of the Wyatt Rebellion, which is rebelling really against Mary's marriage to Philip of Spain. And she's there. She's kept in the same place. I think that's no. Yes. Yes, of course, for a royal prisoner, it makes sense. But this is psychological torture. I think it's very deliberate. And as you mentioned, they keep her there until the 19th of May. Now, if that isn't deliberate, I don't know what (laughs) is. They could have released her before then. But she was so convinced that she was going to go the same way as her mother, that she actually sent a message to Mary asking for a swordsman like her mother had had because she knew it was the swifter death. So she was planning for her death. She was preparing for it. And then on the 19th of May, she heard the jailers come and she must have thought, that's it. They've chosen the anniversary to to Mm -hmm. execute me. But instead of of turning right out of those apartments and going to the scaffold site, she turned left and out of the tower. But still, she was so traumatised that that night when she was taken away from the tower, she told her ladies, I think I'll die tonight. I think I'll die. She still thought she was going to die. So then... Fast forward um, five years or sort of four and a half years, she's back at the tower before her coronation. And she makes this remark that, um, you know, I was, I'm paraphrasing dreadfully here, but effectively, you know, I was a prisoner here. Now I'm a prince of this land. Others have been princes of this land and ended up prisoners. Now, how many other people <laughs> in history? started out as princes in the tower and ended up as prisoners. Um, There are, you know, you can count on probably two fingers, I would say. (laughs) And one of them is Anne Boleyn. So I think that's a very deliberate reference to her mother that she is making. When she returns to the tower in triumph before her coronation, she's remembering her mother and how it was the opposite way round for her. So that is a really poignant moment. And there's a little wonder Elizabeth hardly ever goes back to the tower. I think once or twice throughout that 44 and a half year reign. Right. Yeah. Why, well, why, why would you? I mean, yeah. that would be a terrifying. But it is really wonderful. That is happening. That's the beginning, the beginning of her reign. She's calling out that mm. memory, which, you know, so she's got her mother with you. And then during the procession, um, one of the pageants features her mother prominently. Yes, it really does on Grace Church Street. Now, mm-hmm. um, I've had a quite extraordinary week because on Monday uh, I retraced Elizabeth's coronation procession. Now, admittedly, partly in a black cab um, oh. in, a, in a London taxi. <laughs> so I didn't walk the whole thing because I was kind of filming it. Um, 
And one of the st- places we stopped off was Grace Church Street, where this extraordinary scene was constructed. And it was this three-tiered, life-size family tree showing Elizabeth's descent uh, and therefore her right to be where she was as queen. Mm-hmm. And so on the bottom tier, you have Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, her grandparents. Middle tier, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, life-size depictions mm-hmm. of her parents this is the first time Anne Boleyn had been mentioned let alone reconstructed in a pageant for everyone to see top tier Elizabeth herself so this is her proudly showing off her descent and Anne Boleyn is in evidence throughout the procession you know we mentioned the falcon it's mm-hmm. everywhere mm-hmm. Uh, but more than that Elizabeth models her entire coronation on Anne's she consults the same people who designed Anne's and, you know, the parallels are just extraordinary. It's the biggest way that the new queen can honour her mother. And, and she really does that with style, I think. Well, yes. And it, certainly there were people we know who would have seen her mother's coronation. It wasn't that far in the past who would have seen hers as well. So much has happened. It seems like it must have been years and years and years. But yeah. actually... From 33 to 59 is not so very long. So there would have been people who saw both coronations. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And would have remembered, yeah, what we talked about, maths is terrible, but 25 and a half years yeah, or something. Yeah, that's just... <laughs> no, it's, it's not that much. So yeah, you're right. Within living memory, there would have been mm-hmm. uh, people who saw both and, and would have been very aware of the parallels that Elizabeth was drawing because of course it made sense for her to to celebrate her father in that procession yes because yeah. you know she's a Tudor but she didn't need to celebrate her mother really but she absolutely does I would say you know I was going to say she gives her mother equal billing she gives her mother more billing by quite a long way in that coronation yeah. yes yeah. and when when she talks about being fully English she talks about having an English mother as well. And yes. that's a little jab at Mary, I think. Yes, isn't it? I'm <laughs> not half Spanish. You know? Right. And I'm not marrying that way. So, yeah. so that's great. So as, um, as you're, as you're writing the book and finishing up the book and um, what would you say are some of your, and I know you can't give too much away, but your favorite um either lessons learned or something you were hoping to find that you did, or, you know, I have some things I secretly believe that I hope to find out are true, something like yeah. what are some of your favorite moments. Oh gosh. The favorite moments that stand out for me. I remember, I think it was the day you and I met in the hmm. British library and I was there to look at this incredible illuminated manuscript, um, which was given to Elizabeth early in her reign. And it was her family tree going all the way back to the ancient Dukes of Normandy. And it's this huge book, beautifully illustrated. And you know how some of these manuscripts, it looks like it was made yesterday. The colours just pop. It's Mm -hmm. extraordinary. And then I got to the bit, the last page, where it's Elizabeth's direct descent. And this is a bit of historical airbrushing because there's no mention of the fact that Henry VIII had any other wife than Anne Boleyn. (laughs) Um, So uh, it basically says uh, Anne Boleyn, the first wife of Henry VIII. So Catherine of Aragon, no, because (laughs) Anne is the first true wife. I can't remember the exact wording, but 
you know, you would think Catherine Aragon didn't ever exist. Wow. Um, so she's been removed uh, from history and it's all about Anne Boleyn and it's all about, you know, Henry VIII and then Elizabeth. And this was presented to Elizabeth, as I say, early in her reign as a gift. But you do wonder with some of these gifts, had Elizabeth just ordered that? You know, like with the locket ring, mm-hmm. we don't know if she was given that or if she had it made. And I wonder with this family tree, it's it's a bit too good, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody just to have coincidentally decided yes. this would make a great present. So that was a real moment. And I think for me, it's always the archives that are the standout moments, whether it's the inventories um, or the, you know, her household accounts or something like that extraordinary family tree. But what I also did with this book, um, because it was a more specific subject, I had the luxury of doing a lot more getting on the road and just visiting places, visiting places Mm -hmm. connected with Elizabeth and her mother. Now, I'm lucky to work in a couple of those, you know, Tower and Hampton Court. But you know, there were other places. Hever Castle I spent a lot of time in, which was an absolute joy. Interestingly there, we don't know if Elizabeth ever visited Hever Castle. But Owen, I know you know the wonderful <laughs> curator there. Um, he and I both agree it's so likely because Elizabeth's stepmother, Anne of Cleves, inherited Hever Castle, of course, as part of her settlement. Um, and uh, Elizabeth and Anne of Cleves were very close. So I think the likelihood is Elizabeth would have visited her there. So I spent time there and and just you can't beat retracing the steps, even though the places I visit, it's not like they had a hidden archive that we didn't know about. But there's right. something about being in the spaces and mm-hmm. Just seeing these things, visiting Elizabeth's tomb, um, spending time in the in the chapel of St. Peter at Vincula in the tower where Anne is, is buried, it just brought everything to life for me. So I loved it. I loved it. The thing is, it spoiled me now. And so I want to do that for every book. So I can no longer write any big subjects because I wouldn't have time to do that. Uh, but yeah, I, you can't be just being in the space, I think, to get inspired. Well, and there are some really extraordinary, as you mentioned, um, Elizabeth's tomb in Westminster, Anne's burial in St. Peter's at Vincula, which we can also visit. So that's really great. We can all go to Hampton Court and Hever and some of those wonderful places. So it really is amazing to walk where they walked. Yeah. And I know when I go to Hampton, I like to just go off, you know, down little corridors that you don't even know. And Touch yes. the wall. Maybe someone touched this wall. <laughs> yes. Know. Yeah, exactly. Just go slightly off the visitor route. Just get take a little left or whatever it might be. And yeah, I love that too. I love that too. Um, whether it's in one of the public areas or just the kind of behind the scenes. I mm-hmm. yeah, it's the same advice I'd give somebody who goes to Venice. Mm. Just get lost somewhere in the nicest mm-hmm. possible way. Just take, don't, don't follow the prescribed route. Just just go and explore. And you don't know who might have walked in those uh, in those little alleyways that you discover. Yes. I love that. I love it, too. Yes. And you do just sort of get that feeling of people. Yeah. All right. So as we um, come to the end of this part of our discussion and we're looking forward to the release in May 19th and then early June in the U.S. That's right. Yeah. So we'll keep, we'll keep on that. All that'll be in the show notes. Um, Is there, are there questions that you would like readers to bring to the book 
um, to sort of focus our reading. I mean, I know we'll all just jump in and read and love it, <laughs> but sometimes it's kind of fun to go in with some questions. So are there any questions you think readers might enjoy bringing to these? Yeah, I guess, the, yeah, I mean, the, the the main question is one that we said right at the beginning, which is, did Anne Boleyn have any impact on Elizabeth? Well, I hope the book answers that, but I think it's good to genuinely interrogate that as mm. I had to when writing this book. It was a bit of a leap of faith writing it because I didn't know if there was a case to answer here. Um, but I think I think it's good for readers to come with with hopefully, um, you know, no bias, just mm -hmm. be prepared to be convinced or otherwise in terms of Elizabeth's relationship with with her mother. Um, also, perhaps a question around legacy. You know, what mm -hmm. difference did this relationship make? Would Elizabeth have been a different queen without her mother's influence? Would she have been as successful a queen as she turned out to be? Would she have reigned for as long? Mm. You know, these are questions that I kept asking myself during the course of the research because I thought I can't just credit Anne with everything. You know, if it's not there, but I so I, I genuinely did interrogate myself and, and the sources with that in mind. You know, what the kind of so what? What different? Yes, they might have been close. Yes, Elizabeth might have really revered her mother's memory, but what difference did that make? So, if readers come with that question, I think that's a that's a great one to start with. Oh, that's wonderful, and that's a really great one to just have in your mind. So, as we turn to it, have that in mind. Um, so that's that's just wonderful. Well, you know, I cannot wait. I've been counting down. It's already ordered, so um, oh, I will you. have all that information in the show notes, so everybody can also order it. But tell us, um, besides the theater tour, so thank you for letting us know about that. What else are you working on? Um, I have the, the fiction as well. So are, are there some fictional books in the future for us? And what else are you, what, what is ahead? Yes, it's all about the fiction. In fact, for the next uh, three books, I'm writing fiction. Oh. Now, it's not, well, at the moment, it's not a trilogy. Uh, three just separate individual fiction books. Hmm. And um, I hope you'll be delighted to hear that the one I'm working on right now, the first of those, is a Tudor subject. Oh. Um, because of course, my first fiction trilogy, I was it was I was a traitor. I went into the Stuart period. <laughs> um, but I've gone back to the Tudor period. I can't say exactly what it's about, but suffice it to say. You know, uh, it, it, it's a very well-known character, um, mm. but I'm telling it from a very different place, um, both in terms of geography and in terms of the way in which I'm bringing that story uh, to the reader. So I've started it um, and I probably won't get much written over the next couple of months, if I'm <laughs> honest, uh, although it may keep me sane during the, the craziness of the theatre tour. Uh, but that uh, I'm handing it in next spring. So about a year from now. Okay. And hopefully it will then be out in in fall. Uh, yeah, 2024. Um, okay. Again, the US dates can be slightly different, but but hopefully, you know, it'll be it'll be out there um, pretty soon after okay. that. So, so that's really what's keeping me busy. Um, I've got a couple of TV things um, that I'm working on as well, which definitely keeps me out of 
mischief um, <laughs> and um, over the coronation um, I'm, I'm going to be doing some broadcasting on both sides of the Atlantic uh, so because um, you know the US media I found is you know they are more organized and they are booking people and getting ahead and so I'm going to be doing some US media but also some some UK media around the coronation um, as well so yeah just those royals they keep me busy <laughs> they, they do they do and uh i i am starting to hear um some exciting things about the coronation and i actually read today i did read it today so maybe you can confirm that of course the crown jewels have to be removed from the tower so we can't go view them because they're being prepared for use but when they come back after the coronation that there's going to be a slightly different exhibition or something yes. different with the exhibition. It's so exciting. We need to do a separate podcast all okay. about it. One of the reasons I was at the tower today was to look at the uh, the exhibition being built uh, as we speak. This is going to be a dazzling new display of those crown jewels. Oh. And it's just spectacular. I mean, of course, the you could say the crown jewels are always spectacular. <laughs> so it doesn't matter how they're displayed. But we've had the same display in place for many years. And mm-hmm. now we've done something completely different. But it, my goodness me, it makes those jewels stand out and also gives more of the historical context, I think. So it's less mm-hmm. just come and see the bling, come and see these beautiful jewels, and more about the thousand years of coronations and and kings and queens and and mm-hmm. you know how the coronation ceremony has evolved and it always amazes me just how ancient that ceremony is we're talking you know an anglo-saxon ceremony that has changed little in nearly 1200 years even down to some of the music was originally played wow you know, in the 10th century and we're still playing it now in the 21st century so that's extraordinary so, uh, but the, yeah, of course, the jewels themselves are the star of the show. But it was so exciting. I was kind of there amidst all the the building work going on, and it's going to be yeah, it's going to open in May once once we get the jewels back after the, <laughs> working hard to crown our new king. Oh, that's great! And of course, we you know, of course, all of the coronation will be covered everywhere, and US is very good about oh yeah the coverage of all of that, so we can all look forward to that. We'll look for you. Thank you. So um, this is all just so much fun to look forward to. And we will keep watching. So I know Twitter and Instagram, are they the best places to find you still? They are the best places, although I now have as well an official Facebook page. Um, I've finally gone because I used to just put nonsense on Facebook, kind of just family and friends (laughs) stuff. But I've now actually finally got around to having an official kind of author page okay and that's under my name um obviously and as of yesterday I'm feeling very I was gonna say I'm feeling very grown up I'm feeling the opposite I'm feeling very youthful because I'm now on TikTok I was going to ask about TikTok because I okay yes so so I'm now literally I posted my first video this morning um much to my daughter's embarrassment (laughs) because I'm now on her turf this is this is her tough and yeah she and she was like that video you did mum you know no just no (laughs) just no (laughs) just no so um so I'm gonna have to obviously polish my TikTok skills um okay yeah I, I thought it's about time I I got on there as well 
Okay. So we can find you. And is that with your name as well? That's with my name as, as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll have to look for that. I haven't been, but I will. I will look now. <laughs> I know gonna... I can just about cope with Twitter and Instagram. Now there's this other thing that I need Another to do. Another thing, yes. So, but that's good. We'll have all those links, of course, in the show notes. So, well, thank you, Tracy. This has been such a delight as always. I so appreciate your coming on and talking to us, getting giving us a sneak peek of this book. Of course, we'll release the podcast closer to publication, but it's very exciting to learn more about just these two remarkable women and um, what an exciting, exciting way to look at them. So thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for coming on and we will be watching you and all the things you're doing. So best of luck with all of it. Thank you so much. It was an absolute joy. I knew it would be, and I knew it would be, you know, the fastest hour of my day or week because the time just goes when we're chatting. Um, and uh, so it's been so much fun. Thank you for having me. And I think we've already come up with at least three excuses to do this again. Yes, absolutely. So thank you. Thank you. And I will hope to see you next in the British Library as well. <laughs> Perfect. Thank All right, you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Royals, Rebels and Romantics. I do have a favor. If you enjoyed this episode, could you please go leave a rating? maybe refer to a friend and think about joining our patron family. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll keep shaking up history together.